Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. Chapter 6 is where we're at. Hard to find. Use your table of contents. It's hard to give you a page number. Y'all got different versions. Amos chapter 6, woe to you, which tells us we're off to a great night of woes. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So we get um, a little bit of doom and gloom tonight. We'll try to do it with a good attitude. We'll embrace it. Um, the warnings uh, have been to Zion and Samaria here. Uh, Amos has been called out of Judah to the northern kingdom, but by throwing Zion in here, he's talking to all of Israel, both the south and the north kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. This is a period of prosperity. We've covered that. But what we know about the northern kingdom, which is going to help us tonight, is that they have made their own version of Judaism under Jeroboam I, but Jeroboam II is doing the same thing. The sins of Jeroboam are what Amos is, is preaching against, which is people taking what God has ordered or ordained for worship and making it their own thing or doing it for convenience. Um, they also have idol worship under Ahab. He introduced other idols into the country. So they have both. God did and still judges nations that do these things. Um, he, he looks at their prosperity and what the Northern Kingdom has done is they've put in their faith in their sliver of time in which they have great prosperity in the Northern Kingdom. And Amos is saying that God hates this prosperity that you're abusing. You're not using the prosperity to help people. You're using it to help yourself. And we saw that in Amos chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And these false, these false idols are becoming their heart. They have had some time to get it right. Uh, and the warnings have gotten stronger and stronger and stronger, a la Amos chapter 2. So God's given them tons of warnings over 200 years that they're doing it the wrong way. And over 200 years, they have failed to listen. And God is coming to some judgment. And so these are the powerful elements that everything they see around them, their economy, their military, everything looks strong. Everything looks like the northern kingdom is doing great. Um, but and, and Assyria is not even named in here. So the, you get this idea that they're, they're thrilled. The reason they have prosperity is not because Israel was awesome. It's because Assyria just beat up on Syria and Syria was one of their chief antagonists. And in the fall of Syria, there's nobody right neighboring Israel to be troublesome or to be raiding their country. So those immediate raiders have had to deal with this rising power at this time. So um, to whom the house of Assyria comes, or is their territory greater than your territory? There's this idea as we go into this woe period or the... Um, the things, oh, actually, we'll get to that in a second. Um, woe to you who are at ease. Last chapter, uh, in chapter four, we saw the cows of Bashan, where, where Amos targeted the women, the wealthy women of the nation. Here, it's those who are at ease. He's, he's, he's talking to both men and women that are doing the same thing. 
So if you felt targeted as a female before, Amos is going to be giving fair woes to everybody, um, equal woes. Um, and I use the cows of Bashan from chapter 4, verse 1, if you want to see where I got that. So what he's arguing here is this ease that they're feeling in verse 1 is a false ease. It's a false sense of rest like everything's going well, but they're putting their rest in things that don't actually provide anything. Mount Samaria and notable persons, again, he's really addressing the wealthy class. Because chapter 1 and 2 came out, and then chapter 3 and 4, and then 5, we've had multiple prophecies from Amos that told the godly people to get the heck out of the country. So who he's talking to now are the people that chose not to leave. And so we see this sense of like, at this point, Amos is basically saying that they have a sin of presumption. They've turned their wisdom into the wisdom. And this is dangerous. As Charles Spurgeon says, not the calm of a soul at peace with God, but the ease of a madman who, because he's hidden his sin from his own eyes, thinks he can conceal it from God. That's what's going on in the Northern Kingdom. Like, you can't say it much better. Thanks, Charles. Self-indulgence, then, it becomes the major problem. Verse 2, go over to Kala and see, that's a Babylonian city. From there, go up to Hamath the Great, that's the Hittite capital. Both were subjected by Tilgath-Pelizar of Assyria, even though they don't mention Assyria. Both fell, and they fell hard. Like Assyria absolutely wiped them out. You'll say, but Babylon rises later. It does. Under an Assyrian king that threw off the authority of his brother at the capital of Assyria. So the Babylonians are actually like a, a seeded group of people from the Assyrian Empire. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? They're, the answer to the verse 2 is no, they're not. Like these were far mightier kingdoms, far larger geography. Second Chronicles 26 shows that Sargon II of Assyria basically erased these cities and planted new cities. Uh, Gath never rises from these ashes. So there isn't like a town called Gath anymore, right? Yet, here we go. So looking at this history as a checkpoint, the question is, do you think you're better than these other nations? And so he's specifically talking here about Gentile nations that God has erased because of their sin. Um, and, you know, the th same thing's true of any nation. When you look back, like, we have a nice touch point. The, the longest-running empire of the history of the world is the Romans, they went 800 years, they were untouchable, and there's no longer Romans. There's no Roman Empire anymore. So a great question from Romans on is, do you think you're better than Rome? Because Rome started attacking Christians and then they fell. So this idea that God can and does control the fates of nations is something that kind of gets rooted in some of these prophecies. Are you better than these kingdoms, it asks. The judgment of Amos chapter 1 is likely now bearing witness. So those prophecies made in Amos 1, they now have a chance to see that those have all happened. Woe to you, verse 3, who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near. So this is that idea of Putting off the day of doom is to not think about it right now. I'm just going to do my thing right now, and when I'm on my deathbed in the hospital, then I'll deal with the God issue. They're just putting it off, and luxury does that. When you're living a life that's at ease, under false ease, you tend to think you can put off the spiritual side of life until you feel like it. Um, God doesn't smile on this, and we can see that. To put something far off is actually the Hebrew word nada. Um, and so you say nada, and it, it, it's to excommunicate or kick something out of your life, 
to purposefully remove something. So this idea of putting off the day of doom or not thinking about it is seen as like an intentional, an action that one takes to put something far off. And then we get into these, the wealth and opulence again. Verse 4. Who lie on beds of ivory. I'd want beds of feathers. So these are pretty hardcore people at that if they're sleeping on ivory. But who lie on beds of ivory. The beauty of ivory is it doesn't rot the same way wood does. So you get a lot less like wood bugs and things in, in ivory. It's a bone. So who lie on beds of ivory. Stretch out on your couches. Eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments. And invent for yourselves musical instruments like David who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. So Amos expands what sinful rest looks like. And we get this sense that God doesn't like this. Verse 4 is fancy furniture and fancy food. Um, I knew that was something was wrong when we went out to a fancy restaurant and we paid like $30 for a plate and then you get like two things on it with some drizzle. And you're like, okay, that's extreme. Because now it's not about eating, it's about fancy eating. Or buying ivory beds when a wood bed will do just fine. And so this idea of spending money on things that are just over the top, just so you can feel good about what you bought. So the idea of eating the calves, uh, eating the young, so to speak, um, from the midst of the stall. The ideal here, and again, Amos is a sheep breeder. So he's using examples that make sense to a sheep breeder. When you tell somebody to go get the baby calf from the middle of the stall, you're asking those workers to get in the way of a mother from her kid to pull that calf out of there. The reason the calf is in the middle of the stall is all the big cows protect it. So you're making, and all you want is the more tender meat. The other thing with eating a calf out of the stall is if you just wait a year, the meat quadruples. Quadruples? Quadruples. The meat, you get a lot more meat if you just wait a year. So you're eating the calf at the expense of a lot of other people eating food from that particular cow. It's wasteful. And so this idea of people having so much wealth and opulence that you would pull a calf from the middle of the stall must be nice. Verse 5 is about entertaining music. This is not worship music. So when it says light, like David, it's in the sense of that David was prolific. He wrote many songs. And you're doing the same thing. But they sing idly the sound of string instruments. Idly there is that you're not doing it for religious purposes. So instead of using music to worship God, you're just using music for its own sake. Eek! That's condemning. When you look at an entire music industry that doesn't sing about God, like, that's being seen here as something that it's not good. It's an indicator of a life at ease or a false ease. Verse 6 talks about bowls, mithrak. The only reference we've ever had to mithrak, those bowls, is for temple use. It's for worship. So the other idea is that when you're drinking wine from bowls, is that you're drinking extremely large amounts of wine. You're not drinking wine for the flavor or the fact that it's gone through a fermentation process that purifies the juice to get the bacteria out of it. You're drinking wine for the sake of getting drunk. You're drinking it out of bowls, right? So this is the idea that you're not just having a drink with dinner. You're going to an event where you're just drinking, right? And you look around and see that that's happened throughout human history. God doesn't like it. The point of those Mithrak are for worship. It's for temple use. The anointing of self is the same idea. Verse 6, you anoint yourself um, with the best ointments. 
The idea here is that an anointing ointment has always in the scriptures been for religious use. You use it to consecrate the priesthood. You use it to anoint people with oil, which is an image of the Holy Spirit. But here they're putting expensive perfumes on themselves just because they like the smell. So they're using these these luxurious things that were meant for other purposes, but they're indulging in it almost to the point of a mockery of God. So that is to say um, an ointment would be expensive. And the point here is with the best ointments. In other words, if you stink, (laughs) it's okay to wear deodorant. Like there's Christians that read that like this. But the word best in the Hebrew is over the top. You're spending a crazy amount of money on these fragrances. So difference between deodorant and, and say a bottle of perfume at the department store. Right? One costs way more money with way less impact. Verse 7 addresses parties. Um, therefore they shall now go captive as the first captives all and those who recline at banquets shall be removed so you've got this idea that it's the banquets are again God commands us to go to banquets they're called feasts but it's done in the name of God and so we eat in a holy way we feast and festival to remember what God's done and God actually gives the Jewish people these periodic feasts where they're supposed to kill the fatted calf and share it and spread it and people go home with food but they're lying, they're reclining at banquets and so it's a very different kind of party that you're going to it has nothing to do with God it just has to do with entertaining yourself so the idea here is that they're they're not grieved for the affliction that they cause, but you're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. What does that mean? They're so hard-hearted and they're so calloused, they have no reaction to the burdens that all these luxuries cause to people. They just soak it up. They don't realize that when you are consuming beyond normal, reasonable consumption, that you're hurting people. That there's a, a luxury to that that they're blind to. They're not grieved by the affliction of Joseph. Gusick says it this way, David Gusick, when God makes us prosperous, we have an absolute obligation to use what he gives us in a way that glorifies him, not in a way that pampers ourselves. So this one thing to live comfortably that God's provided for your needs. It's another thing to live with opulent luxury that makes other people's work harder for your benefit. Verse seven, or another way to say it is live simply so others can simply live. And have an awareness of what the cost is to what you're doing. Verse 7, Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. If they didn't pack up from the last prophecy, those who are left now have a choice. They can ignore Amos again and stick around for this. Um, and, And a lot of them do. At this point, most people are completely ignoring Amos. That he's too extreme. He's out in left field. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Look around. Our military's strong. Our economy's strong. Everything's going great. What does this guy know? And he says, we're all going to get carried away. Nonsense. Um, and with verse seven, I'm going to, we're going to move into PG 13 here. Amos is getting a little bit vulgar. And this is, I think, kind of interesting. Amos is a sheep breeder and he's not a, not a bad one. He all, we're going to see later. He also tends vineyards. So he has sheep in the lowlands and, or, or and vineyards on the hillsides, this guy owns a lot of territory. He's got a lot of authority, but it's blue-collar authority. And he talks like a blue-collar guy, and this becomes extremely difficult to interpret. So what you've probably got in your Bible for gala sur gala, he used gala 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 and one of the other things too. It's a word that has different meanings. 
um, to be uncovered, to be revealed, to be captive or held captive. Um, it can be used in different ways, but here he's using it both ways. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives. Um, all of that in the Hebrew is gala sur gala. Ton of words, right? So what the, what the translator is trying to do is give us a sense of the meaning, which I think they did okay. Um, but it's, I think, and also a PG version of what that is. So the word here is for gala is to be uncovered or naked, right? So in this idea, um, we, it would be therefore, verse 7, therefore, uncovered becomes the first uncovered. And, and the way we get that or we understand the context of that is that idea of those who recline at banquets shall be removed, all right? Those who recline, literally the word there is to hang out or display yourself publicly. So you're, you're reclining on the couch, and you've seen kind of these uh, Renaissance pictures with ladies on the couch that are undressed and that sort of thing. But this would apply to men also. The idea of being hung out at a display or to be revealed at a banquet. So the idea is those, those people shall be removed. Literally, they'll be cut off. <laughs> so there's a play on words here. Those people that are hanging out are going to get cut off. And God's going to deal with some of these situations. What you think is your luxury, what's resulted in just your, your self-gratification is something that's going to be there. So therefore, those people that are... Um, those people that go uncaptivated or uncovered, they're going to be the first to be uncovered. Those who hang themselves out at banquets are the first to be removed or they're going to be cut off. And so that you can, it's, it's, a, it's, not, even a, it's not even that concealed in the original Hebrew. There's, it, it really is something that a sheep reader would say. And it's meant to be memorized. It's catchy in the Hebrew. Gala sir gala. You know, and you say, and you read things like that, and Amos is using his own experiences to try to explain to them what's coming, and that it's just that you guys are, you guys think you're you're on top of it, but you're really not. And then you get to verse verse eight: the Lord has sworn by Himself, no greater thing that God can swear by. The Lord has sworn by Himself. The Lord God of hosts says. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. The idea that God abhors things and hates things is biblical. He hates sin. He hates arrogance. He hates the human idea that that nose tipping of self-importance. I know better than God. And I know better how to do things. And I can presume that I'm right because God hasn't stopped me yet. And God looks at that sort of thing, and we see in the Word of God, God hates the pride of Jacob and hates his palaces. This opulence and this kind of lifestyle is something God's not okay with. Verse 9, Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die, implied, implying a kind of disease or plague or infection. And when the relative of the dead, the one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to the one inside the house, are there any more with you? And then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue. We dare not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord gives a command and he will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. So there's going to be a tragedy that's coming so much so that if there's somebody still alive in a house, they're going to say, don't mention the Lord because we don't want to draw his attention, right? That's how complete this destruction will be. The fear of the Lord will be renewed amongst the survivors. This implies that there may be survivors, right? 
So Proverbs 15, 3, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. God's going to humble them. Guys are hanging out at your banquets. Well, God's going to humble that. He's going to cut that off. And the reality is, in a short amount of time, there are certain realities that will bring Israel humility one way or the other. And God knows where they were all hauled off to. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Same idea, even the same idea that, like, Covering yourself up with humility is kind of like getting dressed in the morning because nobody wants to see you hanging out like that. So that idea of arrogance being kind of an unnatural display or a sinful display of self is a consistent idea between the Old and the New Testament. The idea of burning the bodies, that's not a Jewish way to deal with the dead. The only time that Jewish people would burn bodies was in mass death, the end of a battle, or in, in mutilation of the bodies. So the fact that they're burning bodies in this example um, is, shows the completeness of the destruction that's coming. The, the using the Lord's name in vain is one of the Ten Commandments. So this idea that they don't want to use the Lord's name in vain, like hold your tongue, don't say it. Um, definitely guarding of the tongue. Psalm 39.1 I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with the muzzle. There's a biblical idea here that I think that, that verses 10 and 11 really give us, and that is in humility, one of the first things to get controlled is our mouth and what we say with our mouth. And Amos is saying, like, you guys are going to be so humbled, you'll start watching your tongue. You won't say things that are foolish or arrogant or mocking of God anymore. So that idea of letting your words be few and the words that do come out of your mouth are encouraging and glorifying to God. It sounds really easy, but it's hard to do. The tongue is the hardest thing to control. I don't know how many times in my life I've said things, and while I'm saying it, I'm thinking, why am I saying this? And you, you learn as you get older to control your tongue, to know what you're saying, understand the impact of it. Once it's out, you can't take it back. For behold, verse 11 says, for behold. I want to I just point that out every time. God's asking for them to look at what has happened, right? You didn't believe it before it happened, but the reason for prophecy is when devastation does hit, they're supposed to look back to God. They're supposed to behold what happens. And the evidence of God's grace is both through the miracles of salvation, but also the supernatural miracles of devastation. And that both of those are things that bring glory to God, one way or the other. But Amos is asking them in order, he's telling them so that they can see and understand when it all comes true. God actually was in all of this. God caused these things to happen, not because he hates the Israelites, but because he loves them and he wants them to repent. Verse 12 says, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you've turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Horses, when you run them on, on rocks, will snap their leg. It's just a matter of time. And so they don't like to run on hard rocks. You don't do that. Plowing is the same. When you're plowing in the rocks, you're putting way too much energy into plowing. And it's actually hard on the oxen. Like you're not thinking of the work that it takes to do it. So common sense and wisdom says even for our beasts, we have basic respect of where we're going to expend their energies and their toil. We're not going to run horses on rocks. We're not going to plow fields with rocks. 
So that idea that labor should be carried out in a space where there's a benefit. But he compares that to justice and righteousness. That when a country or a people become this sinful, it turns things like justice and righteousness into stuff that just doesn't sit well with people at all. So instead of just looking for justice, we try to add adjectives to it. We need this kind of justice. We need social justice. We need this kind of justice because actual justice isn't something people even believe in anymore because the systems become so corrupt. So it becomes bitter. Justice turned into gall. What is gall? <laughs> Gall's the flavor after you're done vomiting because your stomach acids have come up and finished pushing that food out. So it's that kind of odd feeling or when you get to the point where you're dry heaving, it's not pleasant and our entire system is meant to not like that flavor. And that flavor is supposed to stick there because if we ate the wrong kind of food and we had to vomit it, the brain needs to remember not to eat that food again. So the smell of gall is meant to set off cognitive delivery systems to help humans avoid foods they shouldn't be eating. So that's gall. You've turned justice into the dry heaving of society. That we're so sick from the process of these corrupt courts because we know they're just run by the rich people that you, don't, you, you want nothing to do with the court system. You'll have entire groups of people that have been mistreated by the courts actually hating the justice system. The administration of power should be to protect other people, but in a society like northern Israel, it's not protecting people anymore, it's actually hurting people. And when the courts are used for selfish gain, it gets to be a, a gut-sickening, twisted, revolting flavor that you hate. Gall. Then you get righteousness turned into wormwood. We talked about wormwood before. It's bitter. It's, it's used to get add a certain kind of flavor. Um, it is selfishness when, right, when put into a church environment is self-righteousness. This idea that we're right and we're good and we're doing good enough, right? And it be, when you bring that into the religious practices of a nation, it becomes bitter. Or people walk away from those churches because they see hypocrisy through and through. Wormwood um, is a plant that has these kind of spiky little leaves. You look at a church where when you walk in and all you see are spiky little leaves and there's a flavor there that's wormwood, it just makes the whole thing seem like I want to be there. I don't know how many people I've talked to today that say, I believe in God, but I don't do church because I've had bad experiences with churches. When self-righteousness in, infiltrates the church environment, it becomes a place that instead of being good and holy and nurturing for the soul, becomes a place where it's just wormwood. It's just bitter. It just turns people off. Which is why I often say, if you don't want to go all in for Christ, stop faking it and give, help us to build a better name for Christ. Because that halfway thing just becomes wormwood for people. It's also a warning. If you're going to be righteousness, be righteousness according to God's plan, not according to your plan. So righteousness needs to be thought about that way. Justice should be God's law, not our own created laws, which tend to just get people upset. Then you get verse 13 those you who rejoice over Lodabar, who say, I have, have we not taken Karname for ourselves by our own strength? This is called bluster. They're bragging about taking a city, like, look at how strong our military is. It's called puffing up. This too upsets our God. Um, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before the fall. We often shorten that to pride goes before the fall. 
And this is where we get that from. Lodabar is a hard thing to translate. Literally in the Hebrew, Lodabar is two different uses of the word nothing. And so, and they haven't, like, this is a weird one. You who rejoice over Lodabar, the translator capitalizes that because they're assuming Lodabar is a place because it doesn't make a lot of sense by itself. This is a sheep breeder talking. Literally the translation, and I think this is, fits the context, is um, you who rejoice over a thing of nothing. And so it's a colloquialism. It's something that a, a blue-collar sheep breeder might use. You're getting excited over nothing nothings. And so that's a hard thing to translate. Colloquialisms are hardest things to translate when you get to biblical things. So it's not an absent either. Like when we use the word nothing, it's the ap absence of a thing. But this is actually the presence of a construct. It is the thing of nothingness. You rejoice over the thing that is nothing. And so it's, it's an extremely hard piece to translate into English especially. But they're rejoicing over vanity, emptiness, nothingness. They're rejoicing over things that humans have made and done. And so this idea of being a rejoicer over nothing and making it into a thing um, is an interesting concept. I think that kids' toys are probably the best example. They're advertised on Saturday morning cartoons. The kid wants them. They desire the plastic. You buy them the plastic, and they go, oh, plastic. And they're very excited about the plastic until they forget about it, and it goes into the back of a closet or down an air vent or something. It doesn't matter to them. It's worthless. And you get some kids that the plastic becomes precious, and they put it on their shelf, and they keep it for the rest of their life. And they take their nothing plastics and make them into something. They mean something. And this is, Amos is saying, you guys rejoice over nothing nothings. The things that are nothing. And then this idea of, have we not taken? All right, the word kenim is not actually in the Hebrew at all. <laughs> this is a really tough kind of piece. So have we not taken is in the Hebrew, taken, not taken, or Again, another colloquialism. He's mixing these together to be memorable. You guys worship nothing over nothings, and you've taken not taken things, right? So you're, you're celebrating the taking of things that don't mean anything. So, and it's the same word low from low to bar that's in the middle of taken, 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 low, taken. You take no takings. You celebrate things that are nothing, and you, take, and you have taken not anything that you've taken, and so these are really tough things to translate. Some people put in the word horns. You might have a translation there um, where they have karnim there. The idea is that the horns were used, but they're not in all the texts. Some of the texts have that word. Some of them don't. So the translators then are kind of like, well, what do we do with this? So there's a, um, a city in Manasseh that's called karnim that they use. The word means house. And the, the horns would be a thing there. Again, they're thinking it's a city. Um, but they're really not sure about that. I think the literal translation from a sheep breeder makes a lot of sense. You guys celebrate, you rejoice over nothing, nothings, and you think your taking of no takings are great. And you just are there. And, and it makes sense that a sheep breeder would have their own words, right? I remember when we went up to northern Minnesota, I'd never heard so many words for snow in my life. But they're very particular about snow up there. They, and we counted, I think, at one point, eight different kinds of snow. Because they go, oh, you got to watch out for pillow drifts. What's a pillow drift? You, yesterday you said there were finger drifts. Oh, finger drifts you don't have to worry about. It's pillow drifts you got to worry about. Well, how do you translate that? How do you translate pillow drift? 
the thing that you sleep on it drifting on the road, like, what does that mean? And what it really means is that when you hit them at 50 miles an hour, they, poof, they go like a pillow, right? And finger drifts will just be like a rumble strip on the road. You don't have to worry about rumble strips. You get good gription on a rumble strip. But the poof can send your wheels off. In, Apple, in a, the Appalachia, we learned that it's not Appalachian. It's Appalachian. And the reason they did that is so they could do their meth stuff. And even back to George Washington's day, up in those hills is where they made moonshine and whiskey. Right? So they're doing illegal drug production up in those hills. They need to know if an outsider is in town or not. So they spell everything one way, and then they purposefully pronounce it differently. It's not Chauncey, it's Chancy. And if you don't say it right, they know you're an outsider. And this is, when you get out into rural areas, often there's vernaculars that pop up that don't make a lot of sense to outsiders or translators. But to people that speak that way, that's just how they speak. So you have this idea here that um, there is a country that, the other thing is sometimes country, when they're proud of being country, they lean into their language. The accents become accented. And so I know when I went to UW-Madison, I'd often lean into the Minnesota accent because people thought it was cute. It was a nice way to connect. So you'd let your O's go a little longer. You'd, you'd get into the boat. And they, people just thought that was hilarious, right? So you lean into it and you, you play country. Um, and I think Amos does that. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's given them these woes and then he's throwing in his own language a little bit. You rejoice over nothing nothings and you say that you're taking nothing takings. And it's like, yes, that's weird to translate, but it also makes a lot of sense. You think you have power, and you don't. By their own strength, they're bragging about nothing. This is like a three-year-old getting to not wear diapers anymore, and they say, I'm a big boy now. And as a parent, you're like, yes, you're a big boy. But they're not really a big boy. They haven't really done anything of consequence to brag about. They're just little kids bragging about they're puffing themselves up. As a, a country, heck, as a person, what do we have to do to get out of shape? Nothing. You get out of shape by doing nothing. What do you need to do to become intellectually dull? Nothing. Just let it happen over time. You know, what do you need to do to spiritually get dull? Nothing. It works in all contexts. So if you want to be spiritually unawake and unaware, then don't do anything for your spirit. Just go, on to your, go to your banquets and hang out there and see what happens. There is a time, though, when you put that off for so long that that can become detrimental to your life. To get ourselves healthy in all different ways, we have to tend to that thing. We have to wake up, make decisions, and take action. That's how you get physically stronger, mentally stronger, emotionally stronger, and spiritually stronger. And I think one of the big things Amos is doing here is he's telling these people, you guys have gotten really dull in your opulence and in your wealth, and you're forgetting what matters in life. Verse 14 ends the chapter, but look, but behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Again, a common theme. He wants them to see it because at this point he's talking to the people that haven't left. They're not going anywhere. You've got 100% of this population hearing this message now that have not listened to Amos in the past. Yet God wants them and is interested in seeing how they react to these things when they do happen. Will you see that Amos predicted these things and therefore God is active in history? 
It says they will afflict you there. The word for afflict is unique. It, it means to squeeze or to press. The Lord will press you. It's a primitive root word, so it can be used in all senses and all ways. He's going to press you physically, emotionally, militarily, economically, spiritually. You will be pressed. And the, the, the same word is used when a, a person is pushed outside, 2 Kings 6, when they're kicked out or driven out of their situation. You are living in opulence. You will be kicked out of that situation. And it'll come quick. Uh, Israel had a policy to erase national identity, and we've talked about this. They took groups of people and they sent them all over their empire so that the culture would die. And they'd become like whatever city they placed them in. So this idea that God's going to melt or God's going to allow the northern kingdom's false religion to just be melted away is something that he wants them to know what he's doing so that they come back to him in heart and mind. And in doing this with Hosea and Micah saying the same prophecies, he's sent to them more than two witnesses to testify that this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Hamath and the Valley of Araba. Um, Hamath is a great city in verse 2. At this period, um, it's a stronghold. And then Araba is literally a term for a valley or a plain. It's not actually a city. It's the plain where the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, where they drain down into the Red Sea, or into the Red sea Gulf. So the Gulf of Araba is the furthest south. Hamath is actually further north than what we call Israel today, which fits with history because Jeroboam too had conquered that area of Lebanon. So he's saying all of this whole area is going to be taken over. So the message is, cre is creatively written, but it's also bluntly written and fairly clear. You guys are living really great right now, and God's pretty much done with your arrogance. So where do you put your confidence? You put your confidence in the economy, the security, entertainment, jobs, or do you put it in false religiosity? He's kind of gone through this whole list. Do you put it in your ivory beds, your puffed up values, your, your little nothing accomplishments that you think you've done? Israel looked rich, but they borrowed, borrowed that wealth from the workers that gave, that gave it to them, chapter four, and they didn't, and it's time to pay the debt. So the very things that the world is built up to make it look like there's security, they kind of look like empty nothings when it all falls apart. So the idea of even a nation or these leaders borrowing beyond their means in order to live how they want, that comes to an end. And you don't really even need God to make that come to an end. There's a natural collapse of that kind of an economy. So all God's got to do is lift his hand of blessing. And it just happens. God abhors this. He hates it. it. There's no difference between a God that hated this kind of behavior then as one who hates that behavior now. God has a certain timer on this kind of behavior. And nations we've seen, even since Jesus Christ, will rise and fall. And the, and the fall usually starts with great opulence beyond measure in that day and age. And that wealth causes a weakness to start. And it's a weakness of ease and opulence. So we trust in the Lord. One way or the other, he's going to figure that out. And he's going to sort that out. So then you get to Amos chapter 7. The word thus is there, but it, 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 it actually is, Amos chapter 7 is like a new prophecy. So we're starting just another section. And we get three visions that Amos has here. Uh, three visions of what's coming. And it's a really curious passage. God uses Amos to describe these situations. 
Um, and we have some differences in Amos chapter 7 between the Masoretic texts that we have. Uh, there were about 800 years after Amos, but then they found the Septuagint texts. The Septuagint texts are a lot closer to when it was written. And there are some differences that, and then again, they're very tough to translate. So we're going to hit some of those spots with Amos where they're like, what do you do with this? What do you do with nothing nothings? Is that a town? Is that Lodabar a town? And so the translators have for years had trouble with this. And the Septuagint, remember, is the Greek version of the Hebrew, right? So even when you're translating from Hebrew to Greek, okay, how are we going to say this? And I frankly love these passages because we today have the resources to look back at the original Hebrew. Um, Verse 1, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop, which is the end harvest, the last harvest. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings, which means taxes. The king, You mow the crop down, the king gets the first fruits. So there's going to be a tragedy that hits the people here in verse 1, not the rulers from chapter 6. This leaves the people with nothing. If those locust swarms come in, and the Hebrew word there is gob, which is a gob is not a, the word for grasshopper. It's the word for like the grouping of grasshoppers. So that's why they translate it locust swarms. It's like a flock of birds. So it's like referring to the flock instead of the birds. The word gob. Nahum 3.17 compares the gob to Assyria, a cloud of military coming through. And so this is one of those tough things with prophecy where it's like, okay, we want to understand it and think of what it means here. Um, but then the other idea is like, okay, is how do we apply this and what does this look like? So we need some discernment. Um, in the Septuagint, it says, a gob is coming at harvest and one of them is Gog the king. So it's a play on words when you look at the Septuagint. Gob and Gog sound a little bit alike. And so you're like, okay, well, who's Gog, the king? And, and again, when we read ours, it's the king's mowings is how they translated it. But in the, in the Septuagint, it's the, there's a gob, a locust swarm coming at harvest, and one of them is Gog, the king. The weird thing about grasshoppers is they don't have a leader. There's no head to a, a, a swarm of locusts. So Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you write that next to your Bible, you can go read those two chapters where they make great use of this image and this reference to Gog or Gob, which is a play on words. Now you can go deep down that rabbit hole, which I'm not going to do. But if you get to the other end of that rabbit hole, you're going to start reading Revelation a little differently, where there is a locust swarm that comes up at the end of days, late harvest would fit with this verse, and it will actually have a leader. And the leader's name is Apollyon. Right? And the, the people of Gog is actually the region of Haman Gog. And so there's this idea that there will be Gog and Magog. Nobody struggles with where Mag- Magog is. It's a city. But Gog is a tough one. That's a region up north of Israel somewhere. And so this idea that there's going to be a, an empire of some sort that has a locust swarm that actually has a leader to it, and that leader is coming straight from the enemy, then you start getting the mind blown like Revelation's crazy stuff. But it also is one of the things where we're hearing prophetic words through Amos and we're getting there. Why do we think this is the end of the days? Because of verses 2 and 3. So it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Well, that's interesting. We just got a prophecy that the Lord says shall not be. Well, how do you see something from God and then he takes it back? So is it a false vision? Like, what do you do with that? 
First of all, we should note this. Verse 2, Amos says, I pray. Like this is an example of intercessory prayer that makes a difference. So we start a conversation with God. God is going to judge. How he's going to judge, he's leaving open to this conversation with Amos. Like he's going to punish. Yet Amos is praying for, oh, not that way, because that form of punishment is actually hurting the people. It's not targeting the leaders that are part of this. So God shows Amos how he could act and as and has in the past sent locusts. If you look at Egypt, he's used this tool. And Amos's prayer has some impact. Oh, Lord God, forgive. The prayer that he makes is one for forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. So, again, God can say, you will be judged for your sins, yet we can pray something like, oh, God, forgive us. And then he relents and says, well, it shall not be that you're going to get punished for your sins. So we're seeing an example of the character of God not punishing for something we deserve punishment for. And it's going to happen again with fire in the next few verses. So there's not an argument here about whether or not their actions were okay. I think it's been clearly made that God hates their behavior and that the punishment of a locust swarm to eliminate or thin out this nation or destroy it is actually justified based on their sins. Like, they don't deserve to be there. Um, But Amos provides a very simple reason for his request. He's not trying to justify the sin. He's not trying to make excuses for the sin. He's not debating the sin. He's simply asking for forgiveness. And then he says that Jacob may stand. Notice he doesn't say that Israel may stand. He goes, he doesn't say may Abraham stand, may the Hebrews stand. But this idea of Jacob being the one who got the blessing from Esau He chose, I think, this term for a very small people, but in the use of Jacob, he's actually uniting the northern and the southern tribes. If they fall, it looks like that inheritance given to Jacob has fallen short. And this is the same argument that's been made a few times by people in the the scriptures that we've read through. Um, This idea that punishment can't erase the people, which a locust storm would be mass death. You can't erase the people because these people are your chosen people. You chose Jacob. You gave him a blessing. So the Lord relents, but here's the tricky thing. When he says it shall not be, but then he had just said that this is what will be, well, then his word's been spoken. So the vision of the locusts doesn't go away because God's word spoken is always truth. And so there's an interesting thing here, at least for Israel in the northern kingdom, this locust swarm won't happen. Notice that God says he formed the locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. He formed these swarms at the end of days, the end of harvest, right? And indeed the late crop after the king's mowing. So God's showing him something that maybe isn't for Israel. Yet the prayer of Amos is, oh, I pray that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Well, we still have Israelites today. Jacob has stood the test of time. He hasn't disappeared. So in Revelation 9, 3, and 4, we still have a reference to a locust swarm, and this is is where I'll end the the trying to make connections with these other prophecies. Revelations chapter 9, verse 3. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. These are locusts that can poison and kill people. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who have not had the seal of God put on their foreheads. There will be a thing at the end of days where there are these 
not grasshopper locusts that have a appetite for humans. Like this is horror movie stuff, right? And they're going to go after humans like a swarm of locusts goes after a crop, leaving nothing behind. This is not normal. And there's no claim in the Bible that it is normal. The whole claim of the Bible is that that is supernatural. This is act of God stuff. Proverbs 30, 27, the locusts are an image of this idea. This is a vision of how, how will Amos react when he sees this? And what would have happened to the northern kingdom if he didn't pray? Like, that's a question. What if he never prayed for this? Well, God does move forward with the one Amos doesn't pray against. And so he, he brings judgment. By the way, uh, Gog Gob is only a couple letters off from Google, but now that's getting crazy. I just want to say that's going too far on that sort of thing. This is included for our instruction, too. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to listen. We're supposed to watch. We're supposed to be aware of these things. Then we get a second vision. Same kind of thing. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Doesn't say Israel. And then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Don't do this to the northern kingdom. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord God. I'm not going to do that to the northern kingdom. Same outcome, same prayer, same lesson. We get it twice. We know in the Hebrew, when you get double words, that's emphatic. When you get double stories like this, that's like super emphatic. God has a plan for things, and our prayers do make a difference. And so when we know what God loves and what God hates, God moves in perfect justice, and we eventually, our hearts want that justice too. We want to see that God makes things right. And the heart of a parent <laughs> is explaining the situation when consequences are coming. When you go to discipline a child, you don't want to discipline a child and they don't know what they're getting disciplined for, because that just feels like anger and hate. But for someone who's aware of what God loves and what he hates, you know why he's disciplining you. And then it becomes an act of love. Because if somebody just hits me, that's an act of hate. When I am disciplined or when my parent spanks me in love because I've done something wrong and I own that mistake, that's actually correction. Yet the physical behavior is the same. These prophecies are a lot alike. God's explaining what? Then he's saying, here's the consequences, but he's having a discussion with Amos about the consequences. What do you think would be a just consequence for these sins I've laid out? And the answer, Amos says, you can't destroy them because the, Jacob, they're a small, they're small, they're very small, God. And so your consequence should be in somewhat in, in connection to their size. The idea of consuming the great deep, the Hebrew word tehom, the, the, the great deep is the same one that we saw in Genesis chapter 1. The earth was about form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the Tehom. It's just this idea of all of creation. The Tehom is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 8, if you want to follow this all the way through the Bible. So the Lord relented is that God sees fire as a purifying and cleansing thing. It's why we do burnt offerings for sin. We burn them up. So you see this consequence. And then God presents this option as a fair and just option for a sinful people. Burning them with fire is one way to take care of this. And it cleanses things and it takes care of them. Those that are remaining in the northern kingdom are completely defiant against God's word and God's law. And God's saying to Amos, this is a fair consequence for what they've done. I can just eliminate them. Not only, he's not like making this up, 
um, he actually did this to Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, like with the locusts in Egypt, it's a consequence God's already used in the history of the world. So Amos knows God can do this. It's not a question of creative punishment. It's using the same tools. He relents as a response to Amos, and which shows you the power of prayer from a single righteous guy. One righteous person, that power of prayer avails much. And Amos is just doing that. Not, not that, Lord, you can't just burn them up. Intercessory prayer. We, we see a history of this throughout the Bible. And I think of these first six verses, this is the most powerful part of this chapter. God actually invites us to pray and intercede for things that are coming. That if we know God hates certain things, then we pray for those things. Please protect our country. Please protect my family. Please guard my church. We're small. And that smallness is a way to humble ourselves. So Amos steps in and does that, and God relents. Abraham played for Sodom and Gomorrah. I remember this in, chapter, in Genesis 18. And God's like, Sodom, that town's got to go. <laughs> I'm done with them. They're going to take this planet down a bad path. They need to be destroyed. And Abraham is like, he came near and said, and so would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? God, don't, you're going to just kill righteous people right alongside wicked people? That's the kind of God I serve? Then in verse 32, he says, then he said, let not the Lord be angry because he's asked him a few times now. I'll speak what once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. What if there's 10 righteous people in the city? Would you then spare them? And God said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. This is why we know the northern kingdom of Israel, when God's laying out these consequences, there's not 10 righteous people left in the northern kingdom of Israel because God doesn't kill the righteous in the same way that he deals with the, the unrighteous. So there's a consequence coming, and God has aptly pulled his people out of the northern kingdom. And then you get Moses, Numbers 21. The Israelites themselves were being punished for their sins, and, and Moses puts up a bronze serpent. And anybody who looks at the serpent will be saved, and everybody else is going to get bitten by snakes and killed. Well, God hasn't presented a snake consequence to Amos. But the idea of Moses going in and interceding for the people, we know God doesn't carelessly give out judgment. We know God provides a way of escape. We know these characteristics because of the scriptures we've already read. And sometimes intercessory prayer is actually essential to the salvation process. Someone has to step in and pray for the sinner. Someone has to say, Lord, give us a way out. And in our case, we have Jesus that did the ultimate step in for us. The ultimate prayer. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. They're small. Forgive them. David, for the sake of my servant David, is like a catchphrase in First and Second Kings. We saw it again and again and again. For the sake of my servant David, I'm going to treat you a little nicer than I should. I'm going to give some mercy and I'm going to give some grace because I love David. Think of the impact David had even after he was dead when it comes to God keeping his promises throughout generations. For the parents in the room and the grandparents in the room, God may be merciful to your descendants for the sake of your righteousness. So live holy, live righteous. Know that the impact of that goes way beyond you. So again, we see Amos seeing a true thing from God, but it's not going to be acted out on the northern kingdom. It still becomes part of the prophetic um, library. Right? So then you get the plumb line vision, number three, verse seven. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall and made with a plumb line and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, I see a plumb line. <laughs> in this vi vision, like, take note, God is standing, God has a hand, 
and he assumes Amos can see him. In this vision, God's incarnate as a human being. Who do we call that? We would call that a Christophany. The incarnate form of God is, is Christ. So he has a plumb line. That, that word there is anak. It's the only use in the entire Bible. And it's used twice, anak, anak, which the, the best we can do with the Hebrew there is anak means lead. So it's a lead lead or a lead, lead of lead. But what a, a plumb line would be is a big hunk of lead and you'd tie it to the end of a string and you'd drop it and you'll hold the top of the string. What this does is it gives you a perfect line from the center of the earth pointing out away from the earth, which we would call straight. But it gives you a line that's consistent with gravity. So if you want to build something and you want it to be straight up and down, you really want it to go straight from the core of the earth outwards. So the gravitation on it is equal. Um, it could be that this word anak is from a very similar word in the Arabic and the Syriac, uh, which is translated as tin. Um, so tin, tin, a tin thing. Um, and, and again, this is where prophecy, I think, gets layered and interesting. So... The idea of a plumb line is simple enough. The image isn't hard to grasp. Israel's going to get measured against God's line, not their own. So here's a wall built by human beings, and here's an actual plumb line. One has gravity, an unseen force that dictates what the line is. But with building of a wall, in the ancient world, all the walls we've dug up archaeologically are built at an angle. And they're tipped inward. So including all the way back to Jericho. The walls weren't straight up and down like a medieval castle. They were tipped inward and backfilled with dirt. And the point of that is that you would have them kind of leaning the right direction. So when it says a wall made with a plumb line, that's interesting. So what does that look like? Or in, in, in if you're at the top of that wall and it's tipped inward, at some point the gravity plumb line is going to knock against the bottom of the wall. And there's going to be a great contrast shown between the human-made wall and the God's plumb line wall. And I think the same thing's true here. The image is clearly going to show a difference. Israel is intentionally building a culture that leans away from God. It's not straight. And when God's measure gets put up against it, it will be shown that one is crooked and one is straight. That's what God's law does. It, it, it accuses us. Here's God's plan. Here's what you have. And so by showing this plumb line, it's a really interesting vision. And then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'm going to drop this line of the law right in the middle of my people. And they're going to see the difference between what I think is straight and what they think is straight. We're going to compare it against God's law. I'm going to set my plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. I'm going to leave them the law. And then I'm not going to be there directly anymore. I'm going to step back. But they'll still have a plumb line. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. How about locusts? No, Lord, please don't do that. How about fire? No, Lord, please don't do that. How about the sword? How about the other armies of other nations coming in? Notice that Amos does not pray in response to the third option. He looks at it. Apparently, the silence of Amos here is indicative of what's going to happen next. And the high places are, are, are the only place. <laughs> it's interesting here that when you see the high places of Isaac being desolate, um, in those days, you would put false idols and false worship on those high places. You'd also use them to, to split the grain from the wheat. 
the threshing floors went on the highest possible, most windy location. There's this idea that, um, well, and, and this is kind of a thing, that the only period of time where the high places are actually desolate is like today. We don't build buildings on the top of hills in Israel. Like the top of hills are generally desolate. They're empty places. They're not being used for false worship anymore. So as you look back over time, like some of this is true. Um, for Amos, there's a standard and a measure, and that's a simple and true plumb line. And it's going to get used. But you also have this idea of a line being drawn. So I'm going to go down another rabbit hole that is a popular prophetic people that get into prophecy get into this. Again, I'm going to say it cautiously because I don't know. They'll take the word plumb line, a knock, a knock, and they'll say, well, that has to do with tin. Where did they get tin in the ancient world? They got it from Tarshish. Where was Tarshish? We don't know. Where did the Phoenicians get their tin from? Well, we know that Phoenicians got tin from the tin mines of the British Isles. And so, again, you got to take a few steps here. So the idea that that plum, the British Isles, the providers of tea, would draw a line somewhere in Israel, well, has that ever happened in history? Yeah, actually it did, 1948. The British people drew the line of where they were going to have a nation again. And so people look at this and say, well, that's interesting. That maybe is what's going on here. For me, when you got to take three, four steps like that in prophecy, I think that's a little too mystical for my God. God's a little more like a sheep breeder and just says it like it is, usually. So when we see prophecies with Christ be fulfilled, you generally have to take one step. Oh, that's actual, not metaphorical. Or, oh, no, that's metaphorical, not actual. And so there's usually only one of those steps, but to say that the line of the plumb line was the British people drawing the divisions of Israel, I don't know about that. But I thought I'd share it with you because we're here to study the Bible and what people get out of it. I will not pass by them anymore. This is a third consequence. I think it's the simplest and worst. Isn't the, the military conquest of verse 9? The worst consequence is that God's not going to be among them anymore. God's going to leave it's going to take off. They've enjoyed a period where God's presence has been the Shekinah glory of the temple in Israel. He has put his presence among them. What a blessing. What a gift. If I told you there's some place on earth you can go and be as close to God's presence as possible, like that'd be a very popular tourist attraction for us. Like we should go and hang out with God. But they could actually do that. God had a period or an era of history, a generation of history where he did that with his people. So there's an age where God's spirit won't necessarily be with Israel anymore. There'll be an age when that temple and that Shekinah glory are empty and done. Has that happened? To me, this is a one-step thing. Yeah, that's actually happened. There's no temple in Israel anymore. It's pretty direct. The locust and fire are only destroyers of the things of this world, but lacking the presence of God destroys the spirit of this world. Gravity is a not seen but very real and powerful force. And the not seen and very real and powerful God is something that will be the thing that judges us. God is not being here is opens up all the human evil and satanic stuff that can happen when God isn't there to protect. It's fair game on the Israelites. Have we seen the Israelites be abused through history? Yeah, quite a bit. So Isaac, Israel... Jeroboam, three targets, each of these get more and more specific. So notice the progression of that as you go through verse 9. So the 
high places of Isaac will be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. I'll rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So parts of this are for all of Israel, parts of this are for the northern kingdom, and parts of this are for simply the house or the rich people and the ruling class of the empire. Sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. This will happen even if he relents on the method. Those sanctuaries are going to be destroyed. And it says, I will rise with the sword. So God actually, the I will rise there is like a lifting of the hand. And what's going to happen is these evil nations are going to come attack you. So the sword's coming after you because I'm pulling my hand away. That protection that you had won't be there anymore. So the enemy has an open door. You ignore God, you mock God, you reject God. God's going to be a gentleman and let you go it on your own. And that's what he's saying in these verses. Amos remains silent. I think that's a big piece. He intervenes twice, but on this one he doesn't. He sees, yeah, that's fair. And again, the northern kingdom is, a, is a, an embarrassment to God's plan because they're not living it. Then there's a break. If you look at the scrolls, the, well, verse 10 is the start of another prophecy. So again, reset, reset your mode. You get to verse 10 and there's a word then there, but the then is not a connection to the previous prophecy. Previous prophecy is just the three visions. So then we get Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Amaziah ironically means mighty is Jehovah. Bethel ironically means the house of God. Um, all the right words, but none of the right content. It looks pretty, and then when you taste it, it's kind of bitter, just like Bormwood. You got a wicked leader with wicked worship now saying wicked things about God's servant. It says Amos has conspired. It doesn't say who he conspired with. Like, who's Amos is on his own. He's a sheep breeder. So who's he conspiring with exactly? And, and I think that's the part they don't want to say. The only person Amos has conspired with is God himself. That's his claim. God has told me these things. So without any sin to accuse Amos of, they go straight for conspiracy. That's kind of what evil does, right? They haven't done anything wrong, but they're trying to overthrow the people that are in charge. So he says, against you, this Amaziah comes into Jeroboam and says, this is an attack against you. And it, actually, if we've read Amos at this point, it's an attack against sin. Jeroboam hasn't been directly mentioned yet. He's attacking the whole nation, not just Jeroboam. But Amaziah wants to get rid of this guy, so he makes it personal, right? They like doing this, so this is fairly typical. Any contrary voice, you need to cancel it. Anything that says we can't have our life the way we want it and God has a plumb line, we don't need to hear that stuff. It's a threat. And so what you do is you try to silence it. So this land is not able to bear all his words. Basically, Amaziah hates Amos and wants to shut him up. Let's get rid of this cat. Jeroboam shall die. Um, we can assume that this maybe was said at one point, but biblically this hasn't actually been said. It's, it's fabricated. That said, it's not contrary to what Amos is talking about. So there may be unrecorded things where this is true. We know that they'll be led away captive. Yeah, we've heard Amos say that. He has, in fact, said that piece. But this looks a lot like when they accused Jesus. They just had to make stuff up. They had to twist his words a little bit. Um, and part of that is I think they've heard the words of Amos. They just don't like what they've heard. And this is true of all the prophets. And it's not unlike today. 
God can give warnings against behaviors and we don't like what we hear, so we ignore the prophets too. So again, they kind of had a, have a, you know, like in a snowstorm, you get a whiteout. They just have a sin out. They can't even see it anymore because they're so lost in the storm of their own stuff. And then in verse 12, then Amaziah says to Amos, go, go you seer, flee to the land of Judah and there eat bread. It's funny that God has told the good people to get out of the northern kingdom. And now we have the bad people telling the good people to get out of the northern kingdom. Like they're hearing it from two different people. Get out. There eat bread and there prophesy. Go do your prophecy stuff elsewhere. We don't need it here. That's because prophecy makes people uncomfortable. It's supernatural. People don't like that. Verse 13, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. Which king is he talking about? The king Jeroboam or the king Lord God Almighty? So again, there's an arrogance here that Amos has already spoke against, so we don't need to dig into it. Um, the fact that it's the royal res residence is like, you can't prophesy here because here is where our earthly authority is. You're going right after our nation. Like nations are more important than God. And so that's, again, there's so much twisted. Um, and then flee, flee to the land of Judah. Why would Amos need to run? Is this like a death threat? Like, is he threatening Amos's life here? And I think when somebody accidentally slips out a word like flee, that's absolutely what this is. Amaziah wants Amos dead or gone, one of the two. So flee, putting human authority above God's authority. This is the sin they've been accused of, and now they're exercising it with Amos. That place. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the place where the king feels comfortable. This is our safe space. This is the place where we don't get accused of any sin ever because we like our sin. This is the place we have these big parties where we lay out on our sofas. And we don't need you telling us to, what we're doing is wrong. And so that idea of the, the sanctuary being a justification not to listen to God, again, just an example of how the enemy, I think, twists the mind. Any discomfort on our part is a reason for somebody else to stop preaching the gospel to us. And that's a dangerous place to be. Like, if it makes me uncomfortable, I should maybe listen versus ignore and get rid of the speaker. So then Amos answers, a good answer, answer of a sheep breeder. Amos answers and says to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. So again, he's, he's, it's not that he's a shepherd. It's a different word. He's, he was a breeder of sheep. He was, a, he was a successful businessman. Then the Lord took me and I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, don't prophesy against Israel and do not spout against the house of Asa. You think I'm a nuisance and a threat? Buddy, you have no idea how irrelevant I am. This is a great answer. You think I'm conspiring against the king? I'm a sheep breeder. Look at who you're threatened by. What is it about what I'm saying? What is this about me that's so threatening to you? Right? And just this, basically, I'm not here for me, buddy. I don't want to be telling these things to Jeroboam and you. I, I didn't ask for this. I was happily taking care of my sheep. The Lord took me as I followed the flock. I was happily moving with my sheep, doing my thing, going through life, working hard. And then the Lord took me out of that situation. 
So maybe he's being accused of conspiring. Maybe he's conspiring with the trees. Maybe he's conspiring with his sheep. You know who I conspire with? My flock that I'm following. That's the only people he's been with. So Amos stands alone because you can't conspire with trees, especially even sycamore trees that give beautiful fruit. The Lord took me. God is his conspiracy party. His answer is simple. You're accusing me of all this nonsense, but I'm telling you I'm here to speak on behalf of God. Listen to it or don't. It's up to you. He would rather be tending his sycamores than doing this work. I just, the honesty of the Bible makes me happy because who wants to be in this situation with unrighteous people? Who wants to bicker with these people? And the idea is sometimes God calls people to do that. And sometimes people have to take a stand even when it's not wanted. Go prophesy. God's authority is what sent Amos there. It was God that said to go prophesy. It's not Amos puffing himself up. He's not trying to make more clicks on his website here. That's not what Amos is up to. He's there because God told him to be there. Um, hear the word of the Lord, not the word of Amos. <laughs> like, and so I like the fact that like his response is to give him another prophecy. And, and then the spouting word there, and again, an odd word to translate. It means to ooze or drip or fall in drops. You ever try to go to sleep when you can hear a dripping faucet nearby? And he's like, yeah, I have. You hear the one drop and you're like, shoot, the faucet's dripping. I got to try to get to sleep before the next one goes. That's what Amos was doing. And that's why we have all these short prophecies from Amos. We've had three or four of them now. They're, they're, they, okay, finally, Amos is shut up. But right when you're about to fall asleep into your ease, there's another spout of Amos to remind you you're off track. And so this prophecy is dripping like a faucet, we would say. Amos is a, an annoying little noise in their world where they'd prefer to be blind to it and put it off the day of doom. Amos uses simple, direct terms, and God is heard. And Amos is so unique from the other prophets. God uses unique people to have a slightly different flavor, but the same spirit. And Amos is the spirit of a dripping faucet in their ears. In Amaziah, we have an individual that makes himself into the target of God because he picks the fight. Okay, good luck. And here's the prophecy against an individual human who dared to challenge Amos. Verse 17, therefore says the Lord, therefore is because he said, don't prophesy, you're a dripping faucet. Therefore, God says this to you. Your wife ugh, shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be... And by the way, when you include daughters in that, they didn't have women in the military. So for women to fall by the sword meant the city was overrun. Your land shall be divided by the survey line and you shall die in a defiled, which means polluted land. That's the worst you can say to a priest. The idea of where you're buried being pure was very important to the Jewish people. So your wife's going to be a harlot. Your sons and daughters will die by the sword. The land that you love so much is going to get divided by other people and you shall die in a polluted land. Your body's going to be laid in a land that's not pure. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. That last sentence, everything I've said is going to happen. Israel shall surely be led away captive. So there, it's difficult when we are saying God's word and other people think less of us because of it. I think that's hard. I don't want people to, I want to get along with people. I really like people. 
So when you're saying, well, God says this and, and I'm going to live by that and people get upset by that sort of thing, that's super hard for us. Most of the time, I think sometimes that can turn into a sin where we don't talk about God because we're scared of what people will think of us. Well, Amos knows what this guy thinks of him. This guy actually told him to leave. Get out of here. And Amos not only doesn't leave upon his command, he actually redoubles down on his prophecy, right? So Amos boldly speaks God's word in obedience to God and ignoring the earthly authority that just told him to get out of the country. He's been excommunicated from the fake church, but it doesn't mean God's abandoned him. He's being asked to leave or Amaziah brought it to Jeroboam. He's being like saying, your passport has expired. Get out of our country. And Amos is just, I think, getting in a last word before he does. He confirms the truth regardless of the pressure. That's difficult. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and hear the land. That's the promise Amos is trying to remind them of. If you just turn, God promised he'll hear you. There's a way out. So going forward, God deals with the people and their land, and he hasn't changed one bit. We are still God's people, and we are still called to repent by Jesus himself, repeated by all of the apostles in all of the letters. If God's people will turn from their wicked ways, they will be saved. God still knows how to separate the wicked from the righteous. He did then with Sodom and Gomorrah. He does now. He did with Israel before it fell. He knows now how to do it. So when we talk about end of days, the Lord's return, as a Christian, don't do that with dread because God knows your heart. He knows you love the Lord and you will be saved from all of that. And he's promised that. So we see that any and all hope for God is, is not to avoid the consequences of sin. They're coming. The way, the hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. That's our living hope because Jesus is alive and he rose from the dead. So we put our life hope in Jesus Christ and we can turn from that. So for God's people, it's always been the same. Humble yourself, pray, seek him, and repent. And when we do those things, God's promised that we'll be safe. So that's why we study the word of God. It's why we trust in the Lord. And blessed are those who believe and have not seen Jesus incarnate. You know, Amos got to see Jesus incarnate. We never do. But God promises a special blessing for those of us who believe who haven't seen and so I want that blessing. Um, I like that Amos doesn't leave or run, and I'll kind of finish on that th in that thought. In the face of everything he's experiencing, we still have hope, and that's the last two chapters of Amos. It's kind of a message of salvation and hope in the middle of all this. But tonight we'll leave with the woes and the beware stuff, but next week we'll get to where, again, God never says here's a judgment without here's a solution. And he always presents them side by side. So we'll get to that next week. And for tonight, we'll wrap it up. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we don't want to run from your warnings uh, for your the truths that you teach us. And we just thank you for Amos being bold, leaving his herd in order to go do this work and put this down in writing and record it. Um, we thank you for the fact that these things have been carried to us and the ministry of the Israelites to keep this word intact through thousands of years of history. And we just thank you for that work. We thank you for what you've done here, God. You've given us a clear roadmap to who you are, what your will is, and what your will for our lives are. And Lord, help us to, 
discern and use our minds and our reason to unpack those things and live in such a way that that our worship is a sweet aroma to you. Um, Lord, you abhor certain things and you hate certain things, but you also love and adore certain things. So Lord, help our ways to be clean and pure and righteous so that we can be those that you adore, your bride. And Lord, we can't wait for you to return, not because we look forward to judgment, but because we look forward to salvation. So Lord, we can't wait for the saving day of grace that's coming as you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.